The title of this morning's sermon is Anarchy Reigns, Part 1. Anarchy Reigns, Part 1. The next couple of weeks, we're going to be in Judges 17 and 18. Don't worry, I'm not going to try and get through all of that this morning. As you know, I w- couldn't possibly do that. Um, I'm going to spend a lot of time just on the first six verses of chapter 17. And it's going to take us a while to work through this stuff. So I exact, I actually, I don't know how many parts there are going to be to this, uh, this particular section as we go through um, the book of Judges. But anyway, as you recall, last week um, we finished up with chapter 16 and we came to the end of Samson's judgeship, which lasted for 20 years. That closed out the main section of the book of Judges. Now we enter the epilogue of the book of Judges, which deals with, as one commentator puts it, the confusion of a depraved people. And Barry Webb, in his commentary on Judges, refers to this epilogue as a collection of unhappy stories. So I must be honest with you, as... A preacher, this is not part of the book that I look forward to preaching. Although, to be honest with you, I didn't look forward really to many parts of the book of Judges because there's hard lessons and and some despicable things that, that occur. But it's God's Word, amen? So we are given it for a reason, and thus we must deal with it. It is good for us to approach it. And what we will encounter next as we go through the epilogue is on one hand easy to understand, yet on the other hand difficult to figure out. I know that's kind of confusing, so uh, let me give you an example. There's this kid's team game that's played with the ball, and the teams take turns playing offense and defense. So the defense starts off controlling the ball by throwing the ball at one of the players on offense, which isn't really a defensive thing to do. It's more offensive, but, you know, there it is. Now, all the kids on defense, they got to wear gloves, except for the kids, the kid on first and the kid at home. They got to wear mitts, but not mittens. They just wear one. The offense tries to hit the ball back to the defense, but you want to hit it to where the defense is not. You don't want to hit it to where the defense is. And you use a bat to try and hit the ball, but not the type of bat that flies and catches bugs. But sometimes this kind of bat causes flies. And then the defense or the offense tries to catch it, but they don't eat it. And the object of this whole game, the objective is to go home. So you start off at home. But you can't go straight home from home. You have to stop off and visit with the other kids playing defense. But not always. Sometimes you just run right by them without stopping. And if you successfully hit the ball to where the kids on defense are not, when they get the ball, they must tag you. Unless it's the first kid then that rule doesn't apply. He doesn't have to tag you. He just has to step on the bag, on the ground, that you're trying to run to before he can step on it while he's holding the ball. 
And sometimes you get stopped before you get to the first kid. But if when they throw the ball at you, first off, and the ball hits you, instead of you hitting the ball, then you automatically get to visit the first kid. But not always. If you're hit by the ball after one of your teammates hits it, then your visits are over and you are out. But not always. Speaking of out, the game is played outside, but not always. Sometimes it's played inside, but usually that's just by really, really big kids. And if you're on offense, you don't want to get out. That's bad because then you can't go home. If you're on defense, you want to get outs. Because if you get three outs, then you get a chance to try and go home. And when you're visiting one of the defensive players, you're allowed to steal unless you're caught. Then your visit's over. Oh, and all of these things I talked about, of course, there are exceptions to these rules. And the game lasts, well, no one knows how long the game will last. Even though the whole point is to go home, we have no idea when we're really going to get to go home. And what it is, of course, is baseball. That was the easy part. Now for the infield fly rule. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to get into that. Those of you that know baseball know what I'm talking about. You probably caught on pretty quickly to what I was describing because baseball is part of our culture. Imagine if you had no idea how baseball was played, like you were from another time and another place, and I was trying to explain it to you. And you may ask, as my wife Karen did, where am I going with all of this? My point is, it's easy to understand how it's supposed to be played when you hear the description of the game, if you're familiar with it. And if you know how the game's supposed to be played, and, and the players start playing, let's say, Calvin Ball, a game where the players, famously a little boy, named Calvin and his stuffed pet tiger Hobbs in the comic strips, make up the rules as they play, and there only being one rule that is in play all the time, and that's that the game is never played the same way twice, you quickly realize that Calvin Ball is not baseball. But the person who doesn't know baseball just seems to get more confused and they lose interest in the whole thing. I think that's what happens with modern westernized Christians with Judges chapters 17 and 18 and on, the whole epilogue. We get confused when we read it or we hear it. While an ancient Israelite would say, that's not baseball, that's Calvin ball. They know how things are supposed to be in Israel. We lose sight of that. So we'll be spending the next few weeks with the story of Micah, a Levite, and the Danites. I know it sounds like a setup for a joke, but I've already used my humor card, so no more jokes. And there's a, there's a, a Baptist, or was a Baptist Bible expositor and an eye surgeon by the name of Dr. John Herkus. And in his book, God is God, which is his commentary on the book of Judges, 
Dr. Herkus writes, in all my life, I have never heard a single reference from pulpit or songwriter or study leader or anybody else at all. Never one single tiny whispered sound that related to the mica of the book of Judges. Then another commentator, Karl Gutbrod, who is a lawyer and also president of the uh, German Supreme Court in the early um, 19th century or 20th century explains why you don't hear anything about this part of Judges. And he writes, the reason is that the story is so crazy, so mixed up, that everyone, including the writer of Judges, is embarrassed by it. So we're going to look at that. We're going to see what would be embarrassing to an ancient Israelite that we might not pick up on. Apart from these cautionary quotes that I've given, we're going to continue through Judges. We're not going to be swayed from our course. We're going to, we're going to move forward and see what we have to see in this. And those of you that have read these two chapters in Judges, 17 and 18, already know what the rest of you will experience. The narrator seems to never turn aside from the story to give us his or God's evaluation of what's happening. And even at the story's conclusion, there's no final moral application or divine judgment that we normally would expect to see. It is as though we are given the facts of the story and left to ourselves to decide what to do with it. And as Paul wrote to the young pastor in Ephesus, Timothy, In 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now we can certainly see this when we meditate on the joy that Paul expounds upon in the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, or when we read the doctrinal truths that are contained in the letter to the Romans. Paul's points are very clear to us, and we appreciate that. It makes, it makes our understanding more sure, doesn't it? But if Paul's statement to Timothy, if we take it seriously, and we should, must include Judges chapter 17 and 18 as being breathed out by God. And so then it must also be profitable for us. So we need to consider why certain parts of God's word are places where we want to settle down and, and kind of, you know, hunker in and, and think about and read and meditate on. And other parts, we just really rather skip them. And I think perhaps it's a, it's a matter of clarity for us. If we see a portion of God's word that is not real clear, we just have a tendency to move on. And that's understandable. So, we're going to try and bring clarity to some parts of the Old Testament that may not be as clear as others. The fact of the matter is really, even though all Scripture is profitable, without a doubt, that doesn't mean that its interpretation is simple. Biblical narrative can be very difficult to interpret. And if we approach it as only a historical account and leave it at that, then 
that's a mistake. We, we need to be asking ourselves as, as we're going through this, why is God telling me this? And you can be certain that it's not just to fill in the gaps on a biblical timeline. And as we go through this account of Micah, the Levite, and the Danites, you'll see that it is almost all pure narrative. It's all descriptive. How then can we know the purpose of this story being related to us? Well, I would say it's through careful observation of the way in which the author is telling it. And we need to see it from his perspective, the, the viewpoint of the ancient Israelite. The author does provide us with clear clues about his intentions. So his manner of, his manner of storytelling is as important as the subject of his story. And this brings us to my first point, point number one. If God's word is intentional, then God must be intentional, and vice versa. If God's word is intentional, then God must be intentional, and vice versa. This intentionality on the part of God and his word refutes and denies coincidence and happenstance. The theological message is that the Lord is active in his creation at every place and at every time. You are to take reassurance from this. You cannot accidentally fall out of the loving care of the Lord. The Lord will not forget you, nor will he misplace you someplace. And since he causes all things to work together for his good ends, there's no need to worry, fret, or fear if you abide in Christ. And abiding means consistently, constantly in his presence. Of course, we're speaking in a spiritual sense here. Now, the first six verses of Judges chapter 17. Please open your Bibles to that if you haven't already. And follow along with me as I read these verses, 1 through 6. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So with this we begin the third and final segment of the book of Judges. The epilogue to the whole book. Recall, if you recall back when we started this, the, the, the book of Judges is in three parts basically. There's a prologue which is chapters 1 through the beginning of chapter 3. Then there's the central section, which is what we ordinarily think of when we think of the judges. This is the book of the deliverers, the Shofitim, the, the men that were called judges who judged 
Israel. That's the main section. Their accounts take up from chapter 3 to the end of chapter 16. And now we come to the epilogue, which begins here in chapter 17 and moves through the end of the book in chapter 21. And within this epilogue, there are two major narratives. Chapters 17 and 18 make up the first narrative. And then when we get to chapters 19 through 21, those last three chapters make up the second narrative. So the central section of the book, which we just completed last week, deals with a series of external threats, outside threats to Israel's existence from foreign invasion and oppression. But the epilogue now turns inward. It focuses on the internal threat to Israel's existence posed by its near collapse from, from uh, or into, I should say, moral and spiritual uh, chaos. The, the writer is giving us vivid examples of how Israel has become thoroughly Canaanized. That is, they have become like the Canaanites, the pagans that God has given them the mission to drive out of the promised land. They are now, for for all intents and purposes, the Israelites are now the Canaanites. And structurally, this last section stands apart from the rest of the book. When you read it, uh, if you're reading closely, you can see there's a difference. There's there's a difference in the language. Um, As... uh, um, One commentator stated, it's like you've left a footpath and you've gone into the gravel. You can feel a difference. And there's no more mention in this last section of the judges, the Shofidim. And we're not going to see the repeating pattern of the book of the Deliverers, which we dealt with for so long, where we saw apostasy, then a crying out, then a deliverance. That's gone. It's like they've just sunk into the apostasy. And we saw the build-up to that, if you recall, in the, as we went through the accounts of the judges. And, but these stories that we're going to be encountering in the epilogue, they occurred during the same general time period of the uh, time of the judges from, from Atniel uh, to Samson. But they don't necessarily follow them in chronological order. So that's one thing as, as modern Westerners, we read the book and we think, okay, now when we get to Micah, this is after the death of Samson, because that's the way the book reads, right? But that's not the way Hebrew literature is to be read. So it could be occurring, you know, in between, there's interspersed between the, the different accounts of the judges, or it could be coming, you know, after the judges. It just, that's just not important to the, to the, to the writing and to the Israelite Um, uh, way of thinking. The apostasy deliverance cycle that we had seen is replaced now by a thematic refrain, which serves as a marker for us for shifts in the narrative, but it's also a major, major point of the book. This refrain is first presented to us in an expanded form. And I'm going to be calling it the no king formula. We saw that at the end of this section we just read in verse 16. There are also abbreviated forms of it um, throughout uh, um, the remainder of the book. And it, if I could diagram it, it would make a lot more sense. It's, it's, it, 
it's set up in a, uh, an inverted pattern, if you will. And I know that's hard to conceptualize. But we saw the full no-king formula in verse 6. And recall that that was um, when the writer says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now look at the first verse in chapter 18 on the next page. 18.1 is the short no-king formula. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And then the first verse in chapter 19, the short formula is, re- is repeated again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And then we go through the remainder of the book, and we get to the very last sentence of the book of Judges. Chapter 21, verse 25 the writer gives us the full formula again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the thought that the author leaves us with as we close the book. Not a happy ending. So if you were diagramming this, it would be full formula would be A, short formula would be, would be B. You'd have A, B, B prime, A prime. It would, it would flow that way, be inverted. That shows intentionality. That, that, that requires planning. Not necessarily by a human author, but inspiration by a divine author is certainly evident in this. And so when, things, when I mention things like this, it may seem like I'm getting into the weeds, but I'm trying to point out to you how God forms his word and how we can see the divine fingerprints on it. It's really, I think it's, it's really marvelous when you stop and consider it. And, and so let's get back to this no king formula, whether full or short formula. When you see a phrase repeated within a book of the Bible, a portion of a book of the Bible, or even within a chapter of a book of the Bible, that's a signal to you. The author, both human and divine, is calling for your attention to this phrase. There's an emphasis being made here. There's a a theme being laid out. There's a pattern that he wants you to see. And we're going to talk more about this particular refrain that I'm speaking of in Judges in a moment. But let's get back to the excerpt that we read. Um, Verse 1, which basically introduces us to who's there and what's going on. Verse 1, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. So we're introduced here to one of the key characters. And, and this short verse contains important information. It tells us where he was from. He was from Mount Ephraim, the, the central high country, immediately north of Jerusalem. This is the territory of the most prominent and powerful of Israel's 12 judges. So geographically and politically, it's at the center of Israelite life and territory. Okay, so this isn't something, what we're going to read, isn't something that happened in a far-off corner, you know, out in the sticks, so to speak. And although most of our English translations introduce us to this person that, that we read his name as Micah throughout chapter 17 and 18, that's his nickname. His, his full name is given at the beginning here in this, in this passage we just read. His full name in verses 1 and 4 is Mikahu. It's important. 
the fact that the writer switches from Mikahu to Micah. Mikahu is used only twice, and in these first four verses, before we really get to know him very much. Then the writer switches to Micah, which is used in every instance afterwards, 18 more times, to the end of chapter 18. So Mikahu is made up of three elements, the name. And the last part, Yahu, refers to the Lord God. So his name means who is like Yahweh? So that's a rhetorical question, expecting the answer, no one. No one is like Yahweh. And in the ancient world, names referencing a divinity, these are known as theophoric names, generally reflect the faith of the one bestowing the name. So one would then think that the parent who named Micah was a worshiper of Yahweh and considered Yahweh to be in a class all his own, completely distinct from the Canaanite gods, completely above them. So why is this longer formal name, Mikahu, used only at the beginning of the story and then dropped after verse 4? What we see here is the irony of Micah's name. It's because of Micah's actions which are horribly out of step with his namesake idea, proclaiming that Yahweh is what we might call species unique, one of a kind, the one and only true God, the Lord, rightfully called. Micah's actions actually deny what his name declares. Micah places other gods on Yahweh's level. This is an example of the embarrassment that the commentator Carl Gutbrod that we talked about. That's what he is, is getting at. This is, this is embarrassing to a faithful Israelite. It's like, this guy doesn't deserve this name. You know, we're going to call him, you know, Bob or Micah. Micah's actions are dishonoring to, to Yahweh, right? We, we're going to see that. Micah does not live up to or deserve his full name. Now, the basic sequence of events are this, because it's, the, the narrative it can be difficult to follow, and, and, and commentators and translators have struggled with this, because they say the, the, the ancient Hebrew is a, bit, uh, is a bit of a mess here, so to, to be honest. So this is what's going on. 1,100 pieces of silver are stolen from Micah's mother. She utters a curse on the person who does it, not knowing it was her son Micah. Micah hears her utter the curse. He tells his mother that he's the one who took the money and says he will return it to her. On hearing this, his mother blesses Micah in the name of Yahweh. Micah returns the money as he said he would do. And on receiving it, Micah's mother tells him that before it was stolen, she had consecrated the money, dedicated the money to Yahweh to be made into an idol for her son, that is Micah. She then takes 200 of the 1,100 pieces of silver and gives them to the silversmith who uses them to make an idol. The idol ends up in Micah's house as his mother had originally intended. Do you see a problem with this? If you don't, I'm going to point out the problems. But see how we could think we're watching baseball and we're watching Calvin ball if we don't know the Bible that well, or if we're not familiar with the, the particular specific ways of worship 
that the Lord had provided his people Israel. Micah, whose name, Mikehu, honors the incomparability of Yahweh, hardly lives up to his name. Not only does he steal, violating the eighth commandment of Yahweh's law, but he shows contempt for his mother by stealing from her. Now that is, that is pretty despicable when you steal from your mom, you know? I just got to say that. I, 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 I think that's the, true. So he violates the fifth commandment by dishonoring his, his mother, the fifth commandment of Yahweh's law. And Micah's mother, okay, you know, we, we can't leave mom alone. We've got to talk about her because there's some problems with mom. She seeks to reverse a solemn blessing, excuse me, a solemn curse with a fresh blessing. And right off from mom, we see an enacted parable, I would say, of James' uh, admonishment about the wickedness of the human tongue. The letter of James, chapter 3, verse 10, James writes to the church, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Her cursing of the thief becomes problematic when the thief turns out to be her son. So is her son another idol to her? I think we should consider that. Then Micah's confession of the, of the theft really is, is very suspicious, I would say. It appears that he does it only out of fear of the curse, not out of remorse or a change of heart. Then mom consecrates this immense sum to the Lord God, to Yahweh. And in case you wondered, you know, hey, she only used 200 pieces of the 1,100 pieces of silver. And what happened to the rest of it? No one has any idea. That's another embarrassment. Commentators can't figure that out. It's like, it's, we're not told. It's not in there. Move along. 200 pieces of silver to make a carved image and a metal image. This is what we call in grammar, uh, hendiades which means it's, um, it's two things describing one. Comes from the Latin or Greek, out of, out of one, two. It, ref it refers to, both these terms, just refers to a carved metal image. There's just one. It can be confusing, and we, reading English, might think that she had two made, but no. Um, and the Hebrew words for the carved metal image, excuse me, the carved image and metal image is Pesel and Masaka. And you're going to hear these again. So um, that's why I'm pointing them out to you. The use of these terms stand as judgment against the sin that is being committed. They're technical expressions used in the law of God, forbidding the making of any kind of image for idolatrous purposes. The author, by using these terms, is pointing the reader back to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 27.15, which says, Cursed be the man who makes a carved, or pestle, or cast metal image, mesakah, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. 
Now this verse I just read from Deuteronomy is the first in a series of 12 acts spoken to Israel upon entering the promised land. Acts which attract the curse or judgment of Yahweh. And they're acts that can be done in secret and kept from others. But the point of this in Deuteronomy is that nothing is kept secret from God. So complete faithfulness is required, both in community life and private life. That is, public life and secret life. So Micah's mother has committed the first part of the curse, the making of the Pesel and Masakah. And Micah has committed the second part, the setting up of the Pesel and Masakah. They are together in this. They're kind of cahoots. She, she's, she's got the money, he steals the money, gives the money back, and then they come together in this act of apostasy. Brings me to my second point, point number two. If we evade the curse of men, the curse of the Lord is greater. If we evade the curse of men, the curse of the Lord is greater. This is important for us to realize because many of us And I think we're all guilty of this to a greater or lesser extent over time. Many people worry about what others think of them, what other men think of you. And unfortunately, there are many who leave their house of idols, really actually their house of demons, and come to the house of the Lord on the Lord's day. And no one is the wiser except for the Lord. The Lord doesn't want just an hour or two of your time on Sunday and then leaves the rest for the demons or for the idols to do with what they will. The one true God demands every moment of your time because he gives us every moment of our lives as well as giving us our lives themselves. It all belongs to him. And he can take everything from us. Yet he is merciful and extends his grace to us. He will give you moment after moment while you ignore him. Until all of your moments are used up. All of the moments he has allotted you from before the world was created will eventually be used up. And the vast majority of us will never know when that is to occur. We will not know when that will happen until that moment comes. Now, if you abide in Christ, that's just a truth of life. And it's something we accept, and we're, we're fine with that. There's no threat in it. But if you do not abide in Christ, my friends, that is the greatest threat imaginable. I think I've said it before, but I'll say it again because it, I, it just comes to my mind every time when I think of the precious, preciousness and the fleeting moments of our life that I have stood over more murdered People, more people killed in accidents than I can even remember. Which is a horrible thing, that you can't remember things like that. But in a way, I guess it's God protecting my mind 
my soul. But I tell you, brothers and sisters and friends, that not one of those people that I stood over performing an investigation or directing investigations, not one of them knew or thought for a moment that that sunrise of that day would be the last sunrise that they would see upon this earth. And yet, their moment came. If you do not know Christ as your Savior, I beseech you with tears in my eyes that you come to know him. No matter what evil you may have been involved in in the past, no matter what wrongful things you have done, Christ beckons to you. If you are hearing these words that I am speaking, Christ is beckoning to you. Do not put this off. And those of you, my brothers and sisters, who are in Christ, we give thanks for that. I give thanks that I stand amongst you as a brother. The second of these curses, going back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 27, the second of these curses spoken out aloud to all of Israel is this. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Micah has also done this by stealing from mom. And Micah's mom, mom's only fooling herself, and perhaps maybe Micah too, but both of them should know better. God's commands are plain. They're just ignored culturally and individually. And we see that today, don't we? God's commands have not changed. His law remains the same. We have a different approach to it through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, perhaps. But that didn't alleviate the law. But our culture, just like Micah's culture, has shoved it aside. Even though this happened, who knows how long ago, this this account we're reading, it's very much like our own times, and that's what we need to see. It's not mom's decision as to cursing and blessing. In fact, her actions, mom's actions, provide added fuel to the fire of God's judgment. She doesn't change the law of God. She does not change what God does or what he thinks or decides because it's like, oh, it was my son. Never mind, that's not a cursing. It's now a blessing. No, the law of God remains. And us as parents, we must realize that it applies to our children. As precious as they are, they are not exempt from following the rules. Those kids that live in a household where there's no rules, The law of God applies to them, regardless of how um, uh, spoiling uh, and, you know, um, lacking in rules mom and dad's house is. This brings us to the third point. Point number three is this. God takes the practice of religion very seriously, and so should we. God takes the practice of religion very seriously, and so should we. The pervasive blasphemy of our culture softens and sometimes covers up the shock 
of a biblical curse. When we read of cursings in the Bible, they may not mean much to us, but an ancient Israelite, that's why Micah, that's why Micah went straight for a time. You know, as far as mom was, because he was abused, being cursed. It's serious business. No fooling. It is serious business. Even now it's serious business. It's not like we don't believe in that stuff anymore. God doesn't curse people anymore. He just blesses them because he loves everybody. That's not what the Bible teaches us, though, is it? The Bible teaches us what we're reading today. This is God's word. The warnings of God's curse or judgment, the result from sin, fall on deaf ears. Now, we're not lacking in false teachers of false religion in our day and age. Their messages soothe the reprobate heart. Many of those who will deny the reality of sin or diminish sin, saying, it is nothing, or it is but a small thing. Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote, there is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. Interesting thing about that, I read that a couple of weeks ago, and this week I've been seeing it pop up in all sorts of places. Maybe some of you have also with, with some of the, um, you know, the reformed postings on the social media or whatnot, and I'm like, wow, I, I guess that really is supposed to be in the sermon because God's shown it to me over and over again. But, but that's a wonderful insight by our brother from time past, Thomas Brooks. So the general theme pervading this whole narrative is concern over false religion. What is to transpire as a story unfolds will emphasize God's judgment on false religion. What is to transpire as the story unfolds will emphasize how Israel has gone astray, how Israel have, has become the Canaanites, those people accursed by God that are to be pushed out of the land or devoted to destruction. Israelites are now those people. Essentially, what we're going to see is Micah sets himself up as a cult leader. And we should not think that we in Orthodox Christianity are automatically immune from false worship. We can engage in it also. Unknowingly, of course. I don't expect any Orthodox Christian to consciously think that he or she's going to set, a, set up their own cult. True religion becomes false religion when false gods are added to the worship of the one true God. This is what we call syncretism, the joining together of different religious practices, and this can happen very easily. And oh, the world around you is going to be so happy with you if you become syncretic in your religion. You are then tolerant. You are then loving because you take all these elements. And there's truth in everything, is there not? And there are many roads that lead to heaven, is there not? No, there's one road, there's one way to heaven, and that's the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But the world does not appreciate that message. You know that. So the Bible shows us that this is an age-old problem that we're facing right here. It's a consistent human problem of thinking that more is better. Well, if you got one God, then isn't two gods twice as good? How about if you have a whole passel of them? Then, man, you are going to be blessed beyond measure, aren't you? 
So Christians today, we're not adding, you know, Baal or Zeus or Jupiter to, the, to, to, to our worship. No. However, false religion is also when we think there is something other than the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that are salvific. That means possessing redemptive power. When we see redemption in something else, there is no redemption in anything else but the God of the Bible. That's why the Father sent the Son and why the Son has sent the Holy Spirit to us. As some of you men this morning in our men's meditations so wonderfully drew our attention to. And I, I echo what Pastor Steve says. This morning was a blessing. Uh, thank you, brothers, for the words that you, you, you spoke. Also, in false worship, getting back to that, if we attach superstitious power to the acts of our fellow mortals, we are engaging in false worship. If we believe that mere mortals can do miraculous things in the religious practice, oh, changing the bread and wine to something that it's not, let's say. Or, you know, I won't, you, you, can, you, you can think of it. You can think of all these things. So next, verse 5. And the man Micah had a shrine. Imagine that. Well, literally, what this, what this is, it's, it's Micah's house of gods, <laughs> is, is what it says in the ancient Hebrew. And ah, forgive me, but it sounds like, you know, a roadside place on the way to Vegas. She <laughs> go by. So... The carved and metal image, the pestle and masaka, commissioned by mom, is added to Micah's religious paraphernalia. And going on in verse 5, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. So the ephod, you know, as many of you know, is a garment worn by the priest. Missing a page here. There we go. And in addition to the carved metal image, which mom had dedicated to Yahweh, Micah had teraphim, or household gods. Now we've seen this before in the Bible, in, in the book of Genesis, when um, uh, uh, Rachel uh, um, steals her, uh, her dad, Laban's household gods, when uh, Jacob decides it's time to leave uh, Haran um, in uh, Laban goes in pursuit of them for the household gods. We also see it in the first, uh, first Samuel when um, Saul's trying to kill David. And, uh, so David takes it on the lamb and his, his wife for a time, Micah, or Michal, um, puts a teraphim or a household god in uh, the bed, in, in David's bed as a, as a, a trick to deceive uh, Saul's men. So Micah's got all this stuff, right? Now he needs someone to make his mishmash of, of the smorgasbord of, of theology work. So he, he ordains his son as the priest of his religion. So Micah has a sacrilegious depiction of the one true God, this Passel and Messachah, along with collections of figurines of false gods, the teraphim, as well as vestments for his son to make things look official. And he's got his very own priest, never mind the tribal and family lineage requirements that Yahweh gave 
for his priests under the Old Covenant. Those somehow don't apply here at this time. So, St. Micah's Cathedral of Mom's Big Bag of Silver is now open for business. And Micah is proof that it is possible to be set on a course of religious faith or ministry which has all the outer markings of success yet be under the curse of God's judgment. And there is one point when the writer of Judges clearly declares himself and speaks to the reader apart from the narrative. This is so rare in the epilogue that it should jump out at us. The author of Judges provides an antidote for this false religion in a comment that he repeats four times in this story. That's the important refrain that I mentioned to you earlier. Not only does this refrain serve as a pointer in the story, but it's the theme of the entire book of Judges, actually. The writer presents his no-king argument. Verse 6, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now we could read this mistakenly just as a fact that, yeah, this was before the time of the kings, so there was no king, so everyone just, you know, kind of behaved themselves and did whatever, and, and it was all good. But no, that's not it. The writer is saying, had there been a king back then, he would have obviously put a stop to Micah's godless nonsense. And his argument, the writer's argument, only makes sense if he lived at a time when Israel had little historical experience with kingship. So this tells us there's an early date for the book of Judges. That it was written at a time when Israel's experience with a king was, on the whole, positive. That would have been during the reign of King David, or maybe the very early part of King Solomon's reign. This idealistic statement would not come from a writer from the latter part of Solomon's reign on when the kings of Israel and Judah upon the division of the kingdom just went crazy and then became really the culprits. The kings were the chief culprits of religious wrong. So the writer has in mind a certain kind of king. A king who would uphold Yahweh's covenant standards and put a stop to this illegitimate worship that's going on with Micah. An illegitimate worship that I would say is very, very common in our land today. Because the writer is compelled to present this no-king argument, we see that this is a time of anarchy in Israel. Anarchy is often thought as thought of as a condition resulting from the absence of laws. Like there's no laws, just do what you want. No, that, that, that's our popular definition now. And, and that's what the word has come to mean. But in classical political theory, it means no king. It comes from the Greek and means having no ruler. There's laws. There just isn't anyone to enforce them. Because Humans are just such great creatures that they will just automatically do what is right. Right? Wrong. It's 
describes in political theory a utopian society of individuals who enjoy complete freedom without government. Now, utopia, as you may know, means not a place. So there is no utopia. The word utopia comes from a novel written in 1516, 1516 by Sir Thomas More in England. Describes this fantasy island. Wonderful, wonderful place. His, his vision of what things could be like if, if we just, you know, got our act straight and, and made the world a better place. It's a place where food and medical care are free. All religions are tolerated. But everyone's safe. They're safe. They're kept safe because they're under constant surveillance. This was in 1516. Sounds like it's a lot closer to our time, doesn't it? So really, we don't find any good example of, of an anarchic society in history. Although this idea has been toyed with in the past, only a couple summers ago, I'm sure you all remember, anarchy was actually introduced. It was enacted in many major cities in the United States. Probably the most well-known was the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or CHAZ, in Seattle. And although certain politicians at the time described it as a big block party of love and unity, you know, free food and medical care and everything's tolerated, it was utopia, you know, so they would have us believe. It was, in fact, a section of the city barricaded off from everything else where city services were prevented from coming in. There was no police, fire, medical, or utilities that were allowed in the area. And violence quickly erupted as self-styled rulers, wannabe warlords, actually, stepped into the vacuum of this no-rulers idea. It didn't last long. That's our human nature. Scientists say that nature abhors a vacuum, but really when we observe history and we observe human behavior, it's also just as true that rulership abhors a vacuum. I used to tell my sergeants that they must lead their platoons and their squads because if they did not lead, someone would. There is no such thing as no leadership. Leadership abhors a vacuum. You lead your squad or someone will step up to do it and they'll probably lead it in a way that you won't like and I certainly won't like and you're going to bear the brunt of my displeasure if that happens. So lead. When there's no ruler, someone or something will quickly step in and grab that role. And it's just as true in our spiritual life as it is in our political life. If you do not have God, the triune God of the Bible, leading your life, there is a God with a little g that's going to step in and lead your life. You may be totally unaware of it, but brothers and sisters, that is a fact. We've all seen it. Most of us have seen it happen in those we care about or those that we have scarily run into in our day-to-day lives. So how does this apply to us today in a time of no king? Even though we ostensibly have a constitutional republic form of government and not a monarchy, we do have a king. Christ is our king. And like a true king, he is king by right. 
not by popular acclaim. Kings are not subject to votes. His kingship is not dependent on your permission or even acknowledgement. You can ignore him, yet he remains king. R.C. Sproul said, The kingdom of God is not of the people, by the people, or for the people. It is a kingdom ruled by a king. This means that he is king over all. He is king of kings. King over all governments, which he has established for his good purposes, including our own government. When a time comes requiring a king to temporarily depart from his kingdom, his law remains in force. Just because he's left the kingdom for a time doesn't mean it's ollie ollie oxen free. The law book goes out the window and you just do what you will. The king appoints deputies to see to the law. And when these appointed deputies proclaim that they are free from the king's reign, then anarchy the time of no king appears to exist. Yet, and yet, regardless of that, the king still reigns. The king is still on the throne. He still wears the crown, even if though there are those who say, down with the king, overthrow the king. That doesn't cha- change the fact that he is the king. Christ, by his death on the cross, his resurrection out of the tomb, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father in heaven, has claimed his throne, proven his right and power to rule over all authorities, earthly and heavenly. And the Father thus has given this authority over to him. Anarchists do not realize that they remain under the authority of the king whom they deny. That's Micah's big problem right now. And these anarchists, they exist only for a time. Ironically, a time determined by the king. During the time of no king, when every person believes that they occupy a throne and can declare what is right in their own eyes, as the author of Judges says, we proclaim that there is a king and that the way of the king alone is right. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for our Lord and Savior, for our King of Kings, Father, for he who rules over all things and has all authority that's been given to him, that was prophesied in, in the book of the Old Covenant under Daniel, that came to pass in the books of the New Covenant and the Gospel writers and in the book of Acts. Father, we give thanks for that. May our attention, may our focus always be on our Lord and Savior, Father. As we go through our daily activities, as we live our lives, Father, may we live them to our God and our King. May we not forget that. May it not pass from our hearts or from our minds. Father, I pray that you bless these brothers and sisters that are here. Keep them safe as they go out this day and next week in their lives. Father, I pray for our brothers and sisters and our friends who watch on live stream or may watch later. Father, 
care for them. May your will be done in their lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.